choices are you making that right now is fine but later isn't going to be like right now it all makes sense it's like you know it's not the best thing it's not god's best for you but it's good enough for right now because you have it in its right place like this works for me right now but that thing given time and circumstance now all of a sudden that thing that wasn't so bad that seemed to make sense ends up being something that you struggle with sometimes sin doesn't exactly look like sin On the surface, it seems like an easy, soft choice that might be a compromise, but shouldn't disrupt things to any great extent. In today's message, Pastor Daniel warns you to avoid these little compromises. Even though right now it seems harmless, one day you're going to have to deal with the consequences of your choice. It's likely to have grown in that time, and you'll definitely see it for what it is, sin. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Joshua chapter 16 with part one of his message, Ephraim and Manasseh's Inheritance. All right, open up your Bibles to the book of Joshua chapter 16. Joshua 16, as we continue our study here in our series that we're calling Homestead in Joshua 16. And, you know, I always love it. I always ask the Lord, I say, Lord, I don't just want to teach passages in your word. I want to live it. So I'm always looking for God's way of making me understand the things that I'm trying to express and explain. So it's not just thoughts, but it's stuff that can come from my heart. And I got a perfect picture of today's message last evening. So, you know, here at Crossroads, we have our gathering in groups on Tuesday evenings. You have men's and women's. And my wife, my bride, Lynn, she is the director of our women's ministry. So Tuesday night is like dad night at my house, you know, so it's me and the kids. And mom's cool because mom went and she bought a real big cupcake for us to split. Right? And so sure enough, when I get home, you know, Lynn's like, I got a cupcake for everybody. I'm like, a cupcake, four cupcakes? She's like, no, one big one for you to, for to split. And I'm like, okay, great. So sure enough, after we eat and everyone's ready and I'm like, you just want to have your cupcake? And everyone's like, yeah. So Annabelle's there, Obadiah's there, Maranoth's there, and I'm there. And I'm like, okay. So I just start cutting the cupcake. Right? And I'll be honest with you. I almost got it perfect, like perfectly split in quarters. Perfectly. But sure enough, I knew it was coming. Annabelle. Mine is too small. Now, meanwhile, like, I'm big, and Obadiah wears my clothes, so he's big, and Maranatha, she's 10, and so she's big, and then Annabelle is like 25 pounds wet, you know, but she is upset. I do not have enough cupcake, and this thing went on and on, and I'm like, no, Annabelle, look, it's too, and Obadiah's like trying to explain to her math, he's like, no, look, if I take out a ruler, look at this, everyone's got the same size, and Annabelle was having none of it, she was so frustrated with what she had gotten, so I'm like, Annabelle, well, listen, sweetheart, that's what you're getting, so, you know, if you don't want it, I'll eat it. You know, because I'm a good dad, you know. If you don't want all you, you know. You know. And at that point, then all the shenanigans stop. She's like, okay, thanks. And she starts eating it, right? But then sure enough, do you think Annabelle ate all of her cupcake? No. She just ate the icing off the top. 
You know, that's all she wanted was the icing. You know, when I realized that all she wanted was the icing, I gave her part of my icing. She's like, thanks. So I really want it. But that idea of you getting a portion and not being content with it, that's exactly what these chapters are about. Because here's the deal. For the children of Israel, at this moment, in Joshua 16, in their history, they are now living in the land that God had promised to them all the way back in the time of Abraham, right? Abraham didn't experience it. Isaac didn't experience it. Jacob didn't experience it. All of Jacob's sons and Jacob ended up in Egypt and lived there for a long time. And then God delivered them from the bondage of Egypt through Moses, but they didn't trust God. So they ended up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years of that. An entire generation of people who were over the age of 20 died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb, right? And then with Joshua as a new leader, they walk into the promised land, and God does all this stuff, and now they're settling in. But sure enough, as each tribe is getting their portion, there are problems. Because the default human condition in the hearts of humanity is we're just never content with what we've been given. And that's just like a new, like, 21st century American problem where, you know, we have access to everything, we always want something more. This is as old as people. And it's something that each one of us struggles with in our own ways, don't we? Like where God allots to us a certain thing and we're just always like, well, that's just not good enough. God, you didn't give me enough. God, you're not taking care of me in the way that I think you're supposed to. Anybody else ever have those thoughts before? Yeah. And so part of what God wants to do in each one of our lives, the Apostle Paul expressed so beautifully in the book of Philippians where he said, I have learned to be content in all things. He said, I know how to abound, which means I know how to have an overflow, and I know how to be a base. I know how to do with little. But in all ways, I've learned how to be content. And I think so much of our joy in the details of our life comes down to our ability to trust that God's allotment for us at any given point is good. And rather than focusing on what we don't have, how do we maximize what we do have? Instead of wondering what we're missing Maybe we need to start learning how to say, God, with what you've given me, I want to make the most of this. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly what we see. Because in chapters 16 and 17, and I am planning on taking both chapters tonight. I know some of you are like, that ain't ever going to happen, Fusco. But chapter 16 is only 10 verses. So unless I really get my preach on, we're going to be fine, I think. But we've already seen, literally we took the entire chapter 15 just to look at the land of the tribe of Judah. And I made the point that Judah gets the most land. Now we see Ephraim and Manasseh and they're going to get less land and they're also going to be a little frustrated with what they get. So let's look what it says in Joshua chapter 16, verse 1, it says this. The lot fell to the children of Joseph from Jordan by Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains of Bethel. Then went out from Bethel to Luz, passed along to the border of the Archites of Atheroth, and went down westward to the boundary of the Japhethites, as far as the boundary of Lower Beth Haran to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. So the children of Joseph 
Manasseh and Ephraim took their inheritance. So really the first four verses just gives us the boundary markers where these things are. Like, so you have a place like Bethel, which obviously has a, a ton of history there in the book of Genesis, where you have Jacob meeting with the Lord there at Bethel. And, but really what you have is you, you'll notice that first you get the tribe of Judah in chapter 15, and now you get the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. And the reason I think that this is important is because by the time we move through the book of Judges, and then we, by the time we move through the first set of kings, whether you go from King Saul to King David to King Solomon, by the time the 12 tribes of Israel split, the 10 northern tribes and then the two southern tribes, the 10 northern tribes are called Israel, or in the prophetic books, Ephraim, and the two southern tribes are called Judah. So really what goes on is it begins as 12, but as you go further down, Ephraim as the largest of the 10 northern tribe gets a place of primacy. And of course, Judah of the southern two tribes gets the place of primacy. And really what you do is you see even in the land allotment, we see Judah getting a lot and then Ephraim comes right there because they're already setting up kind of how the future of these tribes are going to unfold. Now, if you remember the half of the tribe of Manasseh got land on the other side of the Jordan. So now we have the land for Ephraim and what you can call Western Manasseh. Okay, you have Eastern Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan. Now you have Western Manasseh going on here. Now in verse five, it gives us the specific of Ephraim's land. It says in verse five, the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. The border of their inheritance on the east side was Adaroth, Adar, as far as upper Beth Haran, and the border went out towards the sea. On the north side of, you can pronounce that word however you want, Mixmithathathah. <laughs> you know what's so funny? I practiced that so many times today, and then I read it, and I'm like, it goes right out of my head. So just remember, however you pronounce your Hebrew words, just always put the accent on the last syllable, and you'll sound like you know what you're talking about. Anyway, then the border went around eastward to, you can pronounce that one as well, to Anath, Silo, and passed by it on the east of Janahaha. It doesn't feel like everything's got a stutter in this one. Am I the only one who's noticing this in the text? Anyway, then it went down from Janaha to Adaroth and to Naara and reached to Jericho and came out at the Jordan the border went out from Tapua westward to the brook Kenoth, and it ended at the sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim according to their families. The separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. So really what you have is that Ephraim's land is, again, broken out. Now, of course, if you were to look at this on a map, it becomes challenging because the names of places then as later maps become challenging. So you start looking at these areas and you have to approximate it. They knew exactly the landmarks that they were talking about. But in our day and age, as we're trying to recreate historical maps without the blessings of the Encyclopedia Britannica or wherever you get your map information from, it becomes kind of challenging. But really what you have is... Ephraim's land is located immediately north of the territory that would be assigned to 
uh, the tribe of Dan and Benjamin. Really, the allotment for Ephraim stretched from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean and included sites of many Joshua's battle as well as Shiloh, which was where the tabernacle would remain for a couple hundred years until David moved them from Shiloh into Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about this reading, and I think it's probably the most fascinating, is you begin to see the fault lines for the children of Israel in things like in verse 10. Notice what it says. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Now, remember, as we saw the battles of the book of Joshua, the whole nation took certain cities, and then as the allotment was meant to be given out, each tribe was meant to finish the job in their area, right? So God did the bulk of the work through the whole people of God, but then once they were dividing out the inheritance, each tribe was responsible to clear their land completely. But what you find is that the Ephraimites did not clear out the Canaanites from Gezer and instead put them into forced labor. So instead of driving them out of the land, clearing the land, their sense of industry had them choosing to keep them there and subjugate them. Now, the reason I think that this is important is one, it was totally disobedient to what God's plan was for them. And second, if you continue reading in your Bible, by the time you get to the book of Judges, Judges chapters three or two, three and 10, you find out that the Ephraimites are having all sorts of problems with the Canaanites who are still in Gezer. So in the moment, their plan made sense. Maybe we don't want to fight anymore. Let's just have these people be our slaves. It'll be great. But then these people rise on up and become a problem for them. Now, really what this speaks to us about, and I want to place this at each one of our doorsteps, is what soft choices are you making that right now is fine, but later isn't going to be? Like, right now, it all makes sense. It's like, you know it's not the best thing. It's not God's best for you, but it's good enough for right now. Because you have it in its right place. You're like, this works for me right now. But that thing, given time and circumstance, now all of a sudden, that thing that wasn't so bad that seemed to make sense ends up being something that you struggle with. See, this is an important reality because John Owen, who is a Puritan preacher and writer, he said something quite provocative. He said, you're either killing sin or your sin is killing you. And that's why Jesus would say something as aggressive as if your right hand causes you to sin, you should chop it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it out. Why? Because what he's saying is that it's better for you to deal ruthlessly with your sin than to let it abide and then let it blossom later and reap havoc on your life. So really what this is, is this shows an example of a rationalized, justified, soft choice that ends up leading to a big problem in the future. And we all have to say, Spirit of God, will you search my heart and reveal to me if there's any wicked way in me and lead me the way everlasting. See, what I love about that psalm and that verse is it reminds us that at every point of the journey of our lives, our job is to ask the Spirit of God to reflect us back to us, to show us where we are. See, we live in a day and age where everybody is focused on everyone else's problems, 
Everyone is justifiably upset at everyone else's problems, but no one's really looking at their own stuff. It's easier to look down on you for your sin than to deal with your own sin. Does that make sense? And the Bible is constantly pointing us back from the Lord to ourselves. I've heard it said this way. There's an old saying in church that you should love the sinner and hate the sin. And I heard a friend of mine say it. He said, I actually have a better one. You should love the sinner and you should hate your sin. Because that changes everything. Because it's like, no, my job is to love you and my job is to do battle with what's in me. See, you can imagine for the Ephraimites, they didn't even think, even though they knew they weren't supposed to, they were contented to leave these Canaanites there in Gezer thinking, well, listen, we could, it helps us, it helps us with our industry, our sense of materialism. We could use the extra set of hands for service and all the stuff. And instead of dealing with it, they let it fester and that festering ended up becoming a major problem. So here's the question. What are your Canaanites in Giza right now? What are the things that you know you're supposed to deal with that you're not dealing with? You figured out how to keep it. You're like, it makes sense. I had a plan. It's no plan. Any disobedience against God is a terrible plan. So those Canaanites in Giza are not supposed to be there. I got to find a better way to say it than Canaanites in Giza. Because no one's going to remember, like, what's your Canaanites in Gezer? Excuse me? You know? But, like, write it in your journal. Just write, like, no Canaanites in Gezer. Because this is us making soft choices that will later become a major, major problem. And, again, if you don't believe me, just go read the beginning of the book of Judges. Because these Canaanites there in Gezer began to corrupt the children of Israel. They began to intermarry amongst them. And they began to engage in the worship of the Canaanites, and all sorts of problems happened. Now, again, you can't bring that up without talking about the idea of God's wanting the people of God to marry people who will only push them forward and not divert their attention. Now, really what it's saying is that what God wants for us in our marriages and in our relationships is that our marriages push us closer to the Lord. And you realize that in any close, intimate relationship, there is a ton of influence that it's exerted. A ton of influence. The people who speak into your life in those crucial moments of your life have almost the most power in your life. Right? And what happens is, is that if somebody is married to somebody whose primary focus is not to bring glory to the Lord, to bring grace into a relationship, there will be an influence away. And God wants us, before we get married, to make sure that we are choosing to make committed, covenantal relationships only with people who are going to push you closer to the Lord. People who are going to embody the gospel more and more. And I always tell couples before they get married, are you absolutely sure this is what you want to do? Because God's design is one man and one woman Becoming one flesh for one whole life. And that's a long commitment. That's a long time. I mean, you're talking about your youthfulness, your middle age, your elderly years with the same people, with the same, and they're having influence on you. You have to make joint decisions about how you live and why you live that way. And all through the Bible, every time you see somebody marrying somebody who has a different spiritual outlook on life, you always see compromise. I mean, one of the wisest men who ever lived, God blessed him with unique wisdom, was a man named Solomon, the son of David. 
He not only had the tremendous pedigree and the wisdom of his father, David, but God also gave him special wisdom when he asked for it. But sure enough, along the way, Solomon began to marry women of other nationalities. And before you know it, he's building pagan temples all throughout Israel. I mean, the guy who is known for his wisdom didn't practice the very things he knew. So if Solomon is susceptible, how much are we susceptible? And so we want to make sure that in our relationships, are you getting good biblical advice? Are you letting people speak into your life who really love the Lord and who really you're going to not just tell you what everyone else tells you? I use this example because it always makes me laugh. There was that movie, uh, Fireproof, and it was about a couple in there having all sorts of problems in their marriage, and it was really bad. And the husband, he wasn't doing good at all. He was a pretty lousy husband, actually, but he was trying to do the right things. He was trying to put the best foot forward, and there's a scene where he's getting frustrated because he's trying his best. And then she's with her girlfriends and he's like, man, and he made me coffee and he bought me flowers. And they're all like, man, he's just a scoundrel. He's buttering you up so he can take all the money in the divorce and all this stuff. And maybe some, but that wasn't where he was coming from. He was trying and they were giving her lousy advice. And how many times does someone give you lousy advice? Right? You want to get good biblical counsel from people and listen in your marriage because a husband and a wife equal in the eyes of God you make decisions together and you want to make sure that you both can say you know what I don't care what I want I don't care what you want let's ask what the Lord what he wants where a husband and wife can get on their knees before the Lord and say God we do not agree on what the next step is and I don't care what I want I lay my wants down she lays her wants down and we say Lord what do you want And whatever we get in prayer on our knees before the Lord and from his word, we're going to live that out. That's the kind of marriage you want. That's the influence you want. Even with your close friends, you want to be able to say, hey, listen, let's seek what the Lord wants. And when you have friends who say, what does the Lord want? That's a good friend. That's a great influence on your life. And God wants us to have great influences in our lives. Does that make sense? And that's why the idea of intermarrying and the issues that come from it are seen all throughout the Bible. Jesus is real. As you learn from the Israelites today, sometimes soft compromises lead to difficult consequences down the road. Pastor Daniel encouraged you through this message to look closely at the areas you might be allowing to slide, the seemingly harmless sins you've let in. Those things will eventually catch up with you and will cause problems. Instead, focus on eliminating the sins of your life now and following God wholeheartedly. I want to thank you so much for listening to the Jesus is Real program. And I realize that there are many of you You're not a born-again follower of Jesus. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. But as you've been listening, you've been saying to yourself, I want to begin to follow Jesus. I want to help you do that right now. We're going to pray a simple prayer that just acknowledges who Jesus is in your life. So if that's you, if you're saying yes to Jesus for the very first time, pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I'm giving you my life. Thank you for saving me. I believe in you, your life, your death on the cross, and your resurrection. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. For those of you who just received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm so excited for you. I want to know that you did it though because I want to help you take your next steps with him. So pull out your mobile phone, text the word SAVED 
to 51400, S-A-V-E-D to 51400. And my team will get in touch with you. We want to get some more resources in your hands to help you on this journey. Now, my team, we want to share some stuff with you, so don't go anywhere. Thanks, Pastor Daniel. You know, the Bible says that when one person comes to Jesus, the angels in heaven rejoice. And we rejoice with them today if you just prayed that prayer with Pastor Daniel. Again, to receive some resources that are going to help you in this new journey with Jesus, take out your mobile phone right now and text the word SAVED, S-A-V-E-D, to 51400. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel will step outside of cultural norms to remind you of the difference a Christian life should make in the world. As a follower of Jesus, you too need to do what's right in God's eyes, not in society's. The world has its own ideas of what morals and right and wrong are, and more often than not, it goes against what the Bible teaches. God's way is always better and is always the right choice. There's more to come from Pastor Daniel's series called Homestead. Please glance at the clock right now and make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus is Real Radio.